So in this case, um, Jesus tells the man, "Get up and come forward." So the guy's standing there with his withered hand. And um, what did Jesus ask? That's what he asked. Yes. What is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? <laughs> he kind of rephrased the question. They want that. Their view is not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Healing is work. Jesus turns around and says, "Is it is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it?" Um, what they say? <laughs> yeah, they weren't going to answer that question. So. He told the man, stretch out your hand. It was restored. What did they do after that? They plotted to destroy a life. <laughs> yeah, they plotted to destroy a life. Yeah, just <laughs> what they weren't supposed to do on the Sabbath. <laughs> they, what they shouldn't have done any time. Um, then the next section is choosing the twelve. Again, that's in a parallel, at least in Matthew. I think it's in Mark as well. Um, but Luke has one additional detail that I don't think is found in the parallels. And that is, what did he do for the night before he picked them? He prayed, yes. And, and I think this is found more than once in Luke that Luke, Luke emphasizes the prayers of Jesus just a little bit more than the others. I could be mistaken, but I know this one's pretty much unique. So then when he finished picking the twelve, um, he, um, he, he was on a mountain but he, he came down, it says in verse 17, he came down to a level place. And then there was a big crowd, and he healed them, and then he started preaching. Now, in, um, in the parallel passage, what is this sermon called? In Matthew. Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, yes. Um, now, no one can say for sure whether this is the same sermon. Um, in Luke, but it certainly has a lot of elements that are very similar to it. So typically, this is called the Sermon on the Plain, since he came down to a level place. But it it follows the same basic outline as the Sermon on the Mount. But how many chapters long is the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, three chapters. How long is the Sermon on the Plain? <laughs> yeah, it's less than one chapter. Yeah. Um, since it starts in verse 20 of this chapter and doesn't go beyond it. Um, and interestingly enough, some of the pieces he leaves out, he has later in other contexts. Of course, I mean, you, can't, you don't expect Jesus to preach the Sermon on the Mount one time and then never mention anything from it again. Um, some of these the teachings would, he would, I'm sure he would do many times. Um, but he, there's a there's definitely a different emphasis in in this particular sermon and or this version of the sermon. One of the big differences in in Matthew, Jesus really emphasizes the fact that he's teaching them what the law really was talking about and not what they've been told what the law was about, and that's not not even mentioned at all. In, in this Sermon on the Plain. The Beatitudes are somewhat different too. For the, Let me just take the first one. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
How does that differ from the one in Matthew? In Matthew, it's poor in spirit. Um, and of course, we could say, well, let's go look over in Matthew and fill it out. But I'm not sure that he, that Luke wanted us to fill it out. That he may have, that he may really have been talking about people that were physically poor. And he talks about because the next verse, "Blessed are you who hunger now." for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. All those have their parallels, and yet in Matthew it's always a spiritual application. But look what he says next in verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Well, he, all these seem to be emphasizing suffering in one way or another. Then Luke has something that is not in Matthew. And in verse 24, these are the woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Now that to me sounds like physically wealthy. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. So, And woe to you when all men speak well of you. Um, so I, I think Luke is, is picking up some teaching of Jesus that, that was emphasized very differently than uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew, and yet it's in the exact same place in the sermon and it has the same basic structure. Um, verse 27, this this again has parallels in Matthew, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, whoever hits you on the cheek, and he goes on like that. Um, very similar. Then in verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Do not demand it back. In Matthew, of course, he goes into much more detail, but he's much saying the same thing. Now note, this one's a big surprise. Verse 31. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Is that in Matthew? The golden rule, yeah. It is in Matthew. Then why do I say it's a big surprise? In Matthew, it's in a very different context. In Matthew, it's in um, chapter 7. So far, he's been following chapter 5 the whole way along. But in in Matthew, it's in chapter 7 in a context about judge not. (laughs) And now this is in the context of giving to people who ask you well, and this, and in fact, this is usually where we think this is the context we usually think it's a golden rule. And when you think of doing to others as you have them doing to you, we're thinking of things like, well, if the, if the person is need is in need, how would you want to be treated? So it's it's in Matthew that it's in a more of a surprising place, and we have to kind of think about what did Jesus mean when he put it in that place. So in verse, so he goes on in verse 32, and this is again back to Matthew 5. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And he goes on like that. Um, loving your enemies in verse 35, being merciful. Then in verse 37, he comes to the part about do not judge. Now that's in Matthew 7. He skipped all of Matthew 6. Matthew 6 talks about don't, do not do your righteousness to be seen of men. Don't fast to be seen of men. Don't pray to be seen of men. Don't give alms to be seen of men. That's not in here at all. It's not even out of place. It's just it's not in the sermon on the plane. But do not judge is here. 
Um, do not judge, you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you will not be condemned. Pardon, you will be pardoned. And he goes on like that. Then in verse 39, he says he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? Very short parable. <laughs> but Jesus does short parable. Um, is that in Matthew? <laughs> yeah, it's not in the, it is in Matthew, but not in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in a different place. Um, and I'll suggest in Matthew, it's using it in a different context and it has somewhat different meaning. Because in this context, this context is the context of do not judge. You have to watch. You may, you may think he's changed the subject, but look at verse 41. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? He has not changed the subject. So then, in the in the smack in the middle of it, why does he tell a parable about a blind man cannot guide a blind man? What's the point? Yeah, Matthew. Well, he's saying we shouldn't be the blind man trying to lead other people around. Yeah, when 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 we think our job is to find fault in our brothers, and and to, and to go around showing every showing this guy, hey, let me help you out with this problem. Let me help you out with that problem. We're the ones that are blind. You remember in the in the Matthew account, well, actually in Luke two, he's got it here. Uh, he says, "How can you say, let me take the speck out out that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You got a log in your eye, that's going to make you blind." And so that's how how the parable says a blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Um, in in Matthew fifteen, the context is. Um, is with the Pharisees getting mad at Jesus um, for rebuking them, and he says they're they're blind guides. A blind man can't you know can't guide a blind man. Well, the Pharisees, of course, were the ultimate example of what he's condemning here in this matter of judging. They spent their lives judging. I mean, they're all the time trying to pick on Jesus' disciples. Why aren't you fasting? Why you know why aren't you washing your hands? Why are you working on the Sabbath? And they do the same thing with Jesus. That and and yet. They have no intention of learning anything. Their job is to be there teaching. Um, then um, in verse 43, another thing that is also in Matthew 7, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a, a briar bush. In, in Matthew, the context for this is beware of false teachers. And he doesn't even mention false teachers here, although he, he's warning us not to be blind guides. Um, and I don't know whether... I, I think this makes, this makes perfectly good sense without the false teacher idea at all. Um, each of us needs to look at ourselves, not just look at other false teachers. We need to look at ourselves and ask... What kind of fruit am I bearing? Um, because just saying the words doesn't do a thing. I mean, we can show up on Sunday, we can we can word prayers, and you know, thank God for all the wonderful things He's given us. But if we're not bearing fruit during the week, we are not a good tree. We're a bad tree. Um, <clears throat> Then he finally closes out in forty six to forty nine with another parable. What what do we call this parable? 
Linda? Wise man, wise man and a foolish man, yeah. And uh, just like in, in Matthew, um, are you building your house on a foundation? And the only way to build on a foundation is by doing, not just by saying. Alright, any other questions on the Sermon on the Plain then? We could we could spend weeks on it. I mean, I hate to have to jump through it this fast, but this is a survey that we're doing. All right, chapter seven, um, and and this story is also in the, in the parallels. The centurion, um, at least in one parable, parallel, um, a centurion was of what race? Roman. Yeah, he certainly would not have been a Jew. Now, whether he was Roman, that's, that, he was a Gentile. That's what I was looking for. He, he was a Gentile. Um, and in this account, not in the parable, but in this account, he sends people to come to Jesus. He doesn't come to Him personally. He sends Jewish elders to ask Jesus to please save the life of His slave. And I want you to notice what they say in verse 4. He is worthy for you to grant this to Him. He's worthy. Now keep that in mind. Um, and then why, why, how do they know He's worthy? What do they say? Yeah, and He built their synagogue. Which is not, not inexpensive. I mean, imagine a guy footing the bill for a whole synagogue. But that's what He had done. He really cared about the Jews. Then, Jesus is on His way and He sends some more people. And what did He say this time? Okay, yes, but you left out something that is only in Luke. Yeah, right. <laughs> he says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> the Jewish elders say he's worthy. He says he's not worthy. <clears throat> now, who's right? <laughs> well, I think Luke wants us to think about that. <laughs> um, how many of us are worthy? That's, I think that's the the thing Jesus wants us to think about. Yeah. Um, and of course, then He shows the faith that Jesus can heal from a distance. And Jesus' answer at the end of verse 9 is, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. But His faith started with humility. And Luke points that out. Then in verse 11, he goes to another city, the city of Nain. Now, I, I said Luke doesn't mention the place very often, but he does in this case. And, um, what, what city is Jesus normally in? Home base? Capernaum, right here up on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. But Nain is way down here in the southern part of Galilee. But we know he traveled all over Galilee. He, he, I mean, it just we don't have a lot of details about that. But Luke knew where this was. And, Who's with Jesus on this occasion? A large, multitude. a large multitude. So here you picture Jesus and His disciples and a big multitude all come with Him. They're coming to this little town of Nain and meeting them is another crowd. What's this other crowd doing? Yeah, they're coming out. So crowd meets crowd. Now, if... Even in in America, most people understand this. I mean, if you meet a funeral procession, what is the respectful thing to do? Yeah, pull over to the side and let it go go by. Now, people don't always do that in this day and age, but at least when I was growing up, that's the way they did it. 
So is that what Jesus does? Respectfully stands to the side, lets the funeral processions? He stops the funeral. funeral. (laughs) Um, This was a unique situation. This wasn't just any funeral. A young man, the only son of this woman who was a widow. I mean, she is just left destitute and she's just very distraught, as you can imagine. And he first talks to her. Do not weep. Then he talks to the man, who of course dead. Young man, I say to you, arise. And then he wasn't dead anymore. And fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God and saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. Um, Wow. Then, um, in verse 18, we have a story we've already had in a parallel account, so I'm not going to spend any time on it. Um, John is asking questions about Jesus. Um, Are you the one or or should we look for another? Um, Then in verse 31, Jesus says, and this is also in the parallel, but I thought it was worth reading. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. What's the point? They want to call the shots. Um, for who? Yeah. They want to tell John the Baptist how to live. They want to tell Jesus how to live. And they've got it backwards. <laughs> Alright. Um, then in verse 36, we start a story that I think is only in Luke. <clears throat> so we have to do this. One of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. We, we read that and we think, well, that's unusual. <laughs> I, mean, you, I didn't think they cared anything about Jesus. Well, we find out they don't. <laughs> but he did invite him. Um, and we see something that would never happen in, the, uh, in our society. But from what I understand, that this was, this was accepted back then. I mean, the, the Pharisee obviously had some money. He had a large room to, to eat in. and You lay down to eat when you went to one of these fancy places. They, they would put little cushions on the floor and the, and, the, and the table was about as tall as a Japanese table. You know, just one of those little low things. <clears throat> so, there, he, Jesus is there just with His feet stuck out away from the table and He's eating and you know, talking and all this. And a woman just walks in off the street and apparently this, this was just acceptable. You know, today we'd say, what kind of nerves does she have just walking and crashing somebody's party? But she just walked in and went over to where Jesus was and, and where his feet were sticking out, and what'd she do? Yeah, she started pouring some perfume on his feet. And she started crying, and, and so crying so much his feet got wet, so she was drying his feet off with what? With her hair. I mean, this is devotion. I mean, this. Meanwhile, the, the Pharisee, what's the Pharisee's name? Simon. Simon, yeah. What's he thinking? If, if this man knew who this woman was, he would uh, object. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, the you know, he knows the man claims to be a prophet, you know, and that, and I guess that's why I invited him to his house. But he's got proof positive the guy can't be a prophet because he's behaving like a fool here. He's he's letting a woman you know, anoint his feet, and he he wouldn't even let him let her touch him if, if he knew who, who what kind of woman she was. And of course, Simon is he's. This is his town. He knows the woman. 
So, and, but the guy, the Pharisee doesn't say anything out loud. Notice that. Nothing out loud. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. <laughs> and it really shows he's a prophet because he knows exactly what Simon's thinking about. And he tells a very short parable. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Well, you know, it doesn't require a rocket scientist to figure out that the, the 500 is more than the 50. So, you know, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. She says, you're right. <laughs> and then he makes the application of, boy, does it come down like hammer on, on Simon. He shows how Simon had not even done the normal things you would expect a host in that day and age to do for a guest. He, didn't pro- he hadn't provided water for Jesus to wash his feet. He hadn't given him a respectful kiss as he came in. Um, he hadn't anointed his head. Of course, that's something you'd only do for a, a real uh, um, honored guest. But Jesus was not an honored guest. He just he didn't, he didn't love Jesus very much. But the woman did. Why? Why did the woman love him more than than Simon did? Because she perceived that her great sins had been forgiven. She'd been forgiven a lot. How come Simon hadn't been forgiven a lot? He didn't perceive that he had a lot of Yeah, he didn't think he needed a lot of forgiveness. <laughs> he was okay. <laughs> and of course, this stirs them up even more when he tells the woman, your sins are forgiven. And, and they start saying, who is this man who even forgives sins? <laughs> yeah, right. She was also doing these acts before she knew her sins were forgiven. She was doing this before Jesus said that. Well... Yes, and I don't know whether she she knew in advance her sins had been forgiven. I can't answer that. It just seems to me that um, she understood who Jesus was. Well, she certainly understood who Jesus was, um, but she also was very, very grateful to him. Um, here she is, a sinner. He's come and he's preached. She's heard him preach. And she's gotten a message that has made her very grateful. What would that message be? I, the only message I know of is that your sins are forgiven. Um, I'm sure she was happy to hear Jesus say it, though. <laughs> um, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <clears throat> um, Alright. Um, it's possible that she had heard Jesus and she stopped sinning. Oh, I'm sure she had, yes. Yeah, so, yeah no, I'm, sh- I, I'm both of those. I'm sure she had heard him before and I'm sure she'd stopped sinning. And she attributed that to Jesus preaching. That's it, yeah, which it was. <laughs> Pharisees had never preached so that she would stop sinning. <laughs> um, they didn't, um, I don't think they would have thought it would have mattered. Yeah. You know? She's she's hopeless. <laughs> now in, in Matthew chapter eight, the first couple verses are um, unique. I mean Luke, sorry, Luke chapter eight. They're, they're unique to uh, Luke. In verse two, it says also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and jo- Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Um, now we know from other accounts that they did have 
a money box, and they would they would help the poor from this money box. Um, and I, I I assume that they had money, and probably from the same box they used to take care of their own needs. Um, but now we find out where some of the money was coming from. There were some of these wealthy women who who had been helped by Jesus and who loved him, and were they were um, contributing to for his his needs. We find some of these same women at the cross and at the tomb on the on the resurrection day. They have been following him that the whole time. Well, then we have the parable of the sower, which we've already had it in in both Matthew and Mark. Um, and I'll just ask, what what was it that the good the the good soil did? That's why it did it. I'm looking for what it did. Produced a crop. <laughs> that's the key. It produced a crop. That, that's the, the primary message I get from the parable of the soils. God is looking for fruit. He wants a crop from each one of us. He wants fruit. He doesn't just want someone that comes to church. He doesn't just want, want someone that talks a good line. He wants fruit. Then um, in verse 16, now no one after lighting a lamp covers over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts on a lamp stand so that those who come in may see the light. What's the lesson for us about that? He wants people. He wants us to live our lives so that people see it. So that when we go around living like we ought to and talking like we ought to, behaving like we ought to, it's like there's a light shining out and, and all around us there's this pool of light where it was darkness before. That's what Jesus is saying He wants. He's made, in, made us into lamps and our job is to light up the place. Everywhere, wherever we are, our job is to light it up. Now obviously, we can cover that up if we choose. Why would anybody choose to cover up their lamp? Exactly. <laughs> if you go back to the Sermon on the Plain, you know, blessed are you when you are persecuted. There's people around us that don't like to be lit up. They don't like to have their lives lit up. And so there's pressure on us. You know, just take your lamp and you know go somewhere else. So this is why Jesus is telling this. Um, all right. Um, Jesus in verse 19, Jesus' mother and brothers came to him. We've we've had that before. Um, then Jesus calms the sea. We had that as well. Um, but I'll mention in verse 25, after Jesus calmed the sea, they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? We had a similar question back in chapter 8. Who is this man who even forgives sins? <laughs> There's these questions. Luke leads these questions and he's not answering them. I think, I think that's a deliberate um, tack that he is taking. Luke wants us to ask ourselves the same question. Who is this man? And of course, once we answer that, what are we going to do with him? Um, then in, in verse 26 we have a story again this, that we've covered before the demoniac uh, what was the name of the demon that it was in him? Legion because <laughs> there were a whole lot of them 
But and then when they when they left the man, they went into what? Pigs. Pigs, yes. A lot of pigs. And they were all drowned. So then the people asked Jesus to do what? Leave. Yeah, please leave. Yeah. Um, they were terrified. And the man asked to do what? Go with Jesus. And what did he say? No, go back to your people and tell them what's been done. Yeah. What you did. He was the lamp shining. <laughs> Jesus told him to go be a lamp, but he did it. Um, then in verse 40, we have another story we've had before. This is the story of what was the man's name who had the daughter? Jairus. Yeah, he was a synagogue official. Luke gives us one extra detail, though, and that is in verse 42 that his daughter was his only daughter, which just makes the story that much more poignant. Um, and then when the woman touches him on the way, and that, that stops the whole procession, you can just imagine Jairus, you know, we, we got to get going, you know, we don't have a lot of time here. And Jesus is just calling me, looking, who touched me, you know? <laughs> and Luke explains she had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone. Now, when Mark tells it, he says she spent all she had on doctors and they made her worse. <laughs> but, but Luke, being a doctor, he's, he doesn't say that about, about the doctors. He, he, he tells it from a, a doctor's viewpoint. She could not be healed by anyone. I mean, there's some things the doctors can't help with. He knew that. And he. <clears throat> All right, so then, um, chapter 9. <clears throat> He sent out the twelve. And that's also in Matthew, although this is a much briefer story. Uh, he, he only has three verses of Jesus' instructions to them, like, you know, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread. Where are they supposed to get their support if they don't take anything with them? One house supposed to they're worth their due. So. Yeah. Whatever city they go to, if there's someone that's worthy, you live with them and they'll take care of you. Um, um, then in verse 10 the apostles returned they told him about their, their journey I don't know how long it took then he took them to what city? Bethsaida yes so here they were in Capernaum they went to the city of Bethsaida it's not, not mentioned a whole lot in the New Testament but in this case it is they went over there and then crowds followed too. He was trying to get some privacy. He didn't get any privacy. And at the end of the day, what did he end up doing? Feeding them, yes. Uh, this is the traditional site. This picture is the traditional site of the feeding of the 5,000 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This story is told in at least three of the Gospels. It may be four, but I, I didn't check. Um, in this case, he has them sit in groups of about 50 each. And then the disciples hand out the food. What's it? If this is a parable, and I, when I say if it's a parable, I know it's a real miracle. But it's a miracle that's also designed to teach us something. It's a parable. What's it teaching us? Yeah, Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus can take care of all of our needs. Yeah. yeah. He can take... He, and, and there are certain people he's given the job of feeding the flock. I mean, the, the, the shepherds of the flock have the job of feeding the flock. And, and typical congregations would be like 50 each. 
Um, in one of the accounts, it says 50 or 100. Tip, very typical congregation. How are the shepherds to feed all these people? Where are they going to get all, enough bread to feed these people? And I'm not talking about physical bread. I'm talking about the bread of life. Where are they going to get it from? And the answer is they get it from Jesus. He's got enough to feed the whole world. Now, of course, the, most of the people in the 5,000 didn't get that lesson. What they got was free food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we don't have to work anymore. And, but Jesus was looking at something much more important than physical food. And in John, the, the, you, you, the next chapter after this story in John really gives, brings that home to people. Then, um, starting in verse 18, we have the uh, um, who do people say that I am? You know, the great, the great confession of Peter. Uh, you are the Christ of God. And then, as in the other accounts, in verse 22, he starts telling them what's going to happen to him. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And then he talks about the cost of following him. Deny you if anyone wants to follow me, that let him take up his cross daily and follow me. We then have the transfiguration. Um, the only thing I want to notice there, because we've already covered it twice, in verse 31, what were Moses and Elijah talking about on the mountain? His departure, yes, which of course means his crucifixion. Yeah. Um, and then in verse 46, an argument started among them as to what? Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest, yeah. Um, and of course, Jesus uses the child as an illustration. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And then in verse 49, we have something I think is unique to, um, to Luke. Um, John, and I take that back, um, that's not unique to, to Luke. Uh, a little bit later, we get to the unique part. In this case, John says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Jesus said, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now, I think this might relate to, um, in the Sermon on the Plain, judge not that you be not judged. <clears throat> um, then in verse 51, this is what one is unique to Luke. He was on his way to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him and they entered the village of Samaritans and what was the reaction? Yeah, they wouldn't have him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And in John chapter 4, which we haven't got to yet, but in John chapter 4, when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well, he was going the other direction. He was going toward Galilee. And the Samaritans didn't mind that. They objected when you're going to Jerusalem because the Samaritans and the Jews had you know, a pretty strong rivalry about where you, where you worship. So they wouldn't let him go. And so what did James and John want to do? Thunder. Yeah, call down fire. Let's, Lord, you want us to call, command fire to come down from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them. <laughs> oh. And then at the end of the chapter, we have a story we also had in Matthew about the cost of discipleship. The man that wants to follow him wherever he goes, and Jesus says, "What? He has no home. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what you don't know what you're you're signing on for here." All right. Um, chapter ten. Um, he sent out the seventy. This is unique to Luke. In, in Luke, we uh, in Matthew we have sending out the twelve. I think in Mark as well. But but Luke's the only one that mentions sending out the, sending out the seventy. 
and has a long list of instructions to them, which that list matches the list in Matthew that he gave to the twelve when he sent them out. Well, that's not a big surprise. I mean, the same rules are going to apply whether you send out 70 or whether you send out 12. So I won't go over the, the details here, but it, it, it shows that he, he certainly had an intention for more than just the 12 to, to do the preaching and evangelizing. Um, then they come back in verse 17. They're, they're really delighted. He says in verse 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And then he tells them of the power he's given them. But in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice at what? Your names are recorded in heaven. Yeah. Um, now in verse 25, we have a story that at first glance seems like we've had this before. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But in this case, Jesus doesn't answer. What's he do? Yeah, ask him. Yeah. Well, how do you read the law? And the guy gives the answer Jesus would have given. I mean, I don't know whether he'd been listening to Jesus a lot long enough or thought about it himself. What's the answer? Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as what? Yourself, yeah, sounds like the golden rule, huh? <laughs> do unto others, you have them do unto you. And Jesus says, "Well, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live." But why does the guy ask another question? Now you're thinking of the rich young ruler. That's not it. No. Why is he? Why is this guy asking? He wants to justify himself. Yeah. So what's the question? No, no, this is verse 29, sorry. Who's my neighbor? What, is, what do you think he would answer? What would he say his neighbor is? <laughs> anybody that he has been good to in the past, if he hasn't been good to him in the past, they aren't neighbor. Well, like that woman that was anointing Jesus' feet, would that have been Simon's neighbor? Absolutely not. No. No, I mean... Your neighbor is someone who is a faithful Jew. I mean, that's I'm sure that's what he would have answered. Who's my neighbor? A faithful Jew. I want you to watch this again. This is unique to Luke. Uh, no other gospel has this parable. But notice, Jesus does not answer his question. He asked, "Who is my neighbor?" Jesus does not answer that. He says, "A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers." And what do we call this story? Yeah, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, he gets beat up. The poor guy, he gets beat up. They, they leave him half dead. Strip him, beat him, leave him half dead. Who's the first one that comes by? Priest. Priest, yeah. yeah this, this, this particular picture doesn't have anybody else in it. Unless maybe way up there, maybe that's the priest up there. <laughs> yeah, he's on his way. Yeah, he... The Levite, these of course are the highest spiritual people in Israel. They're the ones you'd expect to be the most righteous. But the way Jesus tells the story, they're not doing such a hot job here. So then a Samaritan. Now again, what do you expect of a Samaritan? Well, we saw they wouldn't even let Jesus come into their, their town because he's going to Jerusalem. You know, that's not a neighbor. But Jesus isn't answering, who's my neighbor? 
Samaritan, he sees the guy. What's his attitude? Shows mercy. He felt compassion. Compassion means to feel with. He felt with the guy. He felt bad because the guy was hurting. And and he goes to quite a bit of expense. Um, not just you know what he does on the spot, but he puts him on his own beast. So I guess he walks the rest of the way to Jericho, takes him to an inn, pays for it, pays so, uh, quite a bit of money in advance, and says, hey, "I'll come back and pay you, in, in, you know, if you need more." So Jesus really lays it on thick here. <laughs> so then the question at the end is not the question the guy asked. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? <laughs> Basically, Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong question. Who is my neighbor? That's not a valid question. What you need to ask is, how can I be a neighbor? And Jesus tells us how. And then the last story in this chapter is also one unique to Luke. Um, it says, as they were traveling along, he entered a village. It doesn't tell you what the village is. We happen to know from the book of John, where did Mary and Martha live? Yeah, outside of Jerusalem and Bethany. But Luke doesn't tell us. It doesn't matter for, for this story. Mary and Martha are the two sisters. And what's Martha doing? She's busy in the kitchen. Yeah, fixing the meal. Very important work. That she's got an honored guest. Very important. What's Mary doing? She's Jesus' feet listening to her speak. She's goofing off. <laughs> yeah, she's not helping a bit. <laughs> So then Martha tries to get Jesus on, on her side and, and she gets an important lesson. And the lesson is not, Martha, you need to sit here too and not, and not cook. Somebody's got to cook. But she needs to keep it in its place. And how often do we get involved in something and we think this is the most important thing in the world and we get all distraught over it? And Jesus says there's really only one thing is important. What is that? Yeah, it's Jesus. That's the one thing that's important. So He's not going to make her go in and help. He knows perfectly well Martha can get the job done. <laughs> um, well, any any last questions, comments? Alright, we'll take up with chapter 11 next time. Yeah, John, we do have a question. Uh, it, yes, when the 70 were sent out, it says some manuscripts were... Seventy two. I'm trading the net bottom. I said seventy two and I loved it because they sent out two together, so that meant thirty six. Thirty six is three. Three twelve of it is just wonderful. Yeah. Well, the seventy has meaning too, because in the book of Exodus, um, Moses picked seventy elders. So um and of course Ten is the number of commandments, and seven. Seven times, seven. yeah. So, <laughs> all right, good. Any other comments? All right, appreciate everyone's help.